Hello, this is Dr. Ned Hallowell, and welcome to Dr. Hallowell's Wonderful World of Different, ADHD and Beyond. Our Wonderful World of Different, ADHD and Beyond today is lucky to have with us a really spectacular woman who is growing and growing and growing even as she heads into her 40s. She will tell you about herself. I don't want to steal any of her any of her thunder, but she's remarkable in that she's really decided to do something not only for her son, which is what brought her into this world, but for kids and adults everywhere who learn differently. And she's just a bundle of smarts and intelligence and creativity and uh, really a, a truly remarkable human being. Her name is Jen Knopf, and she's president of the Reed Charitable Foundation, which is based in Florida, but she's quite national, international in her in her reach and her interests. So let me just stop talking myself and let you meet this lovely, wonderful, smart, brilliant woman, and let her tell you her story. Jen, how, how did you get into this world? Well, first of all, thank you for that lovely introduction. Whenever I need to build myself up, I'll make sure that I give you a phone call. (laughs) But thank you for having me. I'm really thankful to have an opportunity to share our family's story and a little bit about our foundation. But I really got into the world of dyslexia and ADHD as I think most people do, which is you are directly impacted either yourself or by somebody that you love. And my son, Reed, who our foundation is named after, I have a 15-year-old daughter and she's my oldest. And then I have my son, Reed, who is now 11. So they're about four and a half years apart. And Kenzie's a neurotypical learner, very quickly picked up reading, writing, spelling in school, and really even before school. She was one of those at like two or three years old who'd point out letters on a menu and tell you what the letter was and the sound it made. And so life went very simply until our sweet little Reedy came along and he's equally as bright and intelligent and articulate, very high vocabulary. He's in a double lawyer household and we never stopped talking. So our kids never stopped talking. When so you say double lawyer, both you and your husband are trained yes. as, as attorneys. Okay. Yes. Yes. And so everything seemed like it should be just like the experience with Mackenzie and both kids I've read to them since they were in utero read. I still read to almost every night. And, you know, so all the things you're kind of told that if you try hard and you're read to, and you have access to books and vocabulary that you'll pick up reading, but you know, at two and three and four years old, when Kenzie was recognizing letters and letter sounds and recognizing words, Reed really wasn't. And, you know, I recognized that and felt worried about it, but was kind of told, oh, he's a boy and everybody catches up and everybody by third grade and, you know, boys don't care as much. Don't compare him to Kenzie. And so every time I'd kind of have that mom instinct that I felt like maybe there was something else going on, it would get kind of squashed. And, you know, he went to really nice private schools that have been around a long time. And so, you know, I'm not an educator and I didn't go to school for that. So, 
you know, I really kind of trusted that they knew more than I did. So you, when um, you would have, as you put it, these mom instincts that something was amiss, you'd talk to the teachers or the pediatrician and they would say what? Just he's developmentally appropriate. You know, not everybody picks up reading, writing and spelling at the same rate. He's a boy. And so boys sometimes don't care as much about academic things in, in terms of maturity. It's sometimes they'll get there a little bit later. Everybody kind of catches up by third grade. So, you know, just let things be. We'll wait and see. And I think, you know, even some of the boy-girl stuff really fed into my gender stereotypes a little bit. And so maybe that made sense. But also, I didn't want to be comparing the kids. You know, there was that comment, like, don't compare them. You know, they're different. And so I would feel guilty that I was comparing Reed to Kenzie. But the blessing of having Kenzie first is that I could see that there was a difference. And I think I pushed harder sooner than I would have because I was not getting recommendations from school to get retested. It was really by the time he got to first grade and he'd had a reading tutor at that point for two years because the school that he was at teaches a year ahead. It's very, you know, quote unquote, academically rigorous. So if you're even at grade level, you're behind. And because my daughter had been there, I knew kind of what the expectation was. So he had a reading tutor, but that wasn't making any progress at all. And, you know, she would say to me, you know, it's like one day he knows it. And the next day it's like, he's never seen it before. And I'm like, I know, right? Like, you know, working with him with a spelling test and he knows all of it. And then he flunks it. Like, I don't, you know, it's so weird. And so I was asking, do you think he could be dyslexic? Cause he was doing letter reversals and things like that. And that's what I thought dyslexia was. I think that's what most people think dyslexia is. I don't know how that became the exclusive. That's the stereotype and it's a tiny part of the story. Right. And so, you know, she would say to me, no, you know, what I was taught was that if you have dyslexia, the words fall off the page. And I've asked him that. And he says that that's not happening. And of course, I've spoken to hundreds of dyslexics now in my work. And that is one thing that happens to some dyslexics, but it looks different to all of them, you know, and and so you kind of fall into different categories. So that didn't fit Reed's reading experience. And so then he got missed for that reason too. But by first grade, and this is a little boy that was like so full of joy, so happy, so confident because he's a problem solver. So even as a little guy, if he wanted to do something and I couldn't figure out how to make it happen, he could, particularly mechanically, you know, and so he'd get lots of prey. He'd take things apart and I'd be like, oh no, oh, the remote control. And he could put it back together. And it just is even as a little guy. And if I knew what I know now about dyslexia, then I would have known, oh man, we've got ourselves an amazing dyslexic brain. But I you could could see even then that he was smart and creative and resourceful and resilient. Thousand percent. And you know, knew that 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 was a gifting of his and thought, gosh, he might be an engineer or an architect because of the way he can see things, even as a little guy. But so he was a really confident kiddo because we were always like, wow, like I can't believe he can do all these things. Right. But then school started and by first grade, most of the kids were reading well and Reed was not reading at all. So within a month of his first grade year, he stopped wanting to go to school. You know, it used to be that he'd hop in the car and he was like so eager, but 
you know, he was misplacing things kind of intentionally. So we would be late to school, begging to not go. I'm dragging him out the door. I'm like mm. physically having to dress him, mm. you know, all of a sudden, like it was a big struggle. And then he started calling home sick. And, you know, it was kind of the same time every day. I'm a lawyer, so I have to keep track of my time in six minute <laughs> intervals here. Pretty acutely aware of your time. And then they stopped letting him call home with, you know, tummy aches and headaches. So he started watching medical shows and he would have medical jargon, you know, so he'd go to the nurse and say he's having a myocardial infarction. (laughs) He's got right side paralysis. Like these are the ones that I remember. I talk about them all the time because it was like, we watched the show, the good doctor together. Yeah. He would be glued to it. And then the next day he'd have like the main problem, you know, that was on the show. And so the nurse loved it. He was this little blonde headed cherub cheeked, you know, six-year-old and it was so adorable, but you know, I was also like, but there's a problem here. Like why is he wanting to come home every day? And so it wasn't until like November of his first grade year that I was drilling him on sight words and spelling tests. And he just broke down one night and he's just like, mom, I'm, I always cry when I say this. He's like, mom, I'm the dumbest kid in my class. He's like, I'm the only one who can't read and please stop making me go there. You know, I don't belong there. You know, if this is life, I don't want to do it. This is terrible. And, you know, to have your six-year-old and I've seen it, you know, I'm the dumbest kid in the class. Yeah. Right. And, and he's, He's so anything but dumb. You right. Know? And you could see how smart he was. He just. And in, you know, two months, three months time, like it's shocking. I think how quickly that shift happens in their minds, right. you know, it's quick and it's deep. Yes. The wound is deep. And I don't think people really understand that, how scary that shift is and how hard it is to bring them back from it. Right. So I went to the school. I'd never really had to go there before because everything was easy breezy for my daughter. They acknowledged that they were making him stand up in front of the class every day to read and that they were not going to stop doing that because they considered it an accommodation. So based on my mommy instincts. They considered it an accommodation to publicly humiliate him? It's to not publicly humiliate him. Uh, Yeah. So um, I don't understand if they were making him stand up in front of the class and try to read. Mm-hmm. Wasn't that humiliating? Yeah. Well, I said, could we please stop doing that? Uh-huh. And they said, no, we consider that an accommodation. The only way we'll stop doing it is if he has some kind of diagnosis. Huh. So they couldn't, they couldn't see. Couldn't they believe what their eyes were showing them? The statement that I got was they could, they could tell he was a social kiddo. He really cared about what his peers thought and that they felt like he was being lazy. Not that he wasn't oh, capable, oh, but that he oh, was being lazy. Oh, and I just, so, this, this is what makes my blood boil. I mean, I know. it's just so wrong. And and here's a private school, supposedly people know what they're doing and they completely missed it well, to the point of doing him active damage. Well, what's so interesting to me is I will speak to individuals that are your age that had this experience as a child. And they're like, well, I'm sure it's much better now. (laughs) And I'm like, (laughs) it still happens. Decades later, we're still doing the same thing to kids 
in school day in and day out. It shocks people, particularly that have had this experience, but aren't in the education space, aren't in this space, you know, and I also talk to people globally. And so sometimes we'll have people say, well, I'm sure it's different in the United States, but here, and I'm like, no, it's no different. This is a global problem and we haven't done anything about it in decades. And we're so what did you do? So what did you do after he cries and says, mom, I'm the dumbest kid in the class. Please don't make me go to this place anymore. What, What did you do? Well, I, you know, obviously I first had that conversation with the school and realized nothing was going to change without us getting a diagnosis or figuring out something. So I said to the school, okay, well, where do I go? You know, if I have to get, and they were like, well, you know, they really discouraged it. They're like, it's expensive. And I just think you're going to find out that there's nothing more going on than that he's lazy. And I was like, well, here's what I know for sure. The boy is not lazy. You cannot imagine what we go through at home to try to be successful during the school day. And so I don't know what it is, but it's not lazy. And so where do I go? And so they gave me the name of a neuropsychologist and, you know, it took probably a month to get into her and the cost was maybe a little less than $2,000, but obviously very expensive for most people. Also, when you've been discouraged from doing it. So like, basically they're saying you're going to throw away $2,000, you know, thankfully, I was in a financial position to take that step. If I hadn't been, I probably wouldn't have done it because I would have been afraid I was wasting my money, but I had this instinct and it was, you know, what else were we going to do? So we got him tested and found out that at the time he was dyslexic and dysgraphic, but even then I didn't understand what that meant. I thought I certainly didn't understand dysgraphia. I'd never heard it before. Dyslexia, I thought, was reading backwards. And so, you know, they recommended that we find a tutor that was trained in Orton-Gillingham. Let me just just interrupt for one second for people listening. Dyslexia is is a very complex condition. A simple definition of it is you're slow to read and spell your native language. The reversals may occur or may not occur, but in no way are they a hallmark of it. Yet the general public thinks that's what it is. And dysgraphia just means you have, you have bad handwriting. That can get you into trouble in school. Even though we live in a keyboard world, school still wants you to have penmanship is what they used to call it when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's a fatigue piece to the dysgraphia. So reads is motor dysgraphia. And so there's a handwriting component to it. There's the spacing is unusual. And he's gotten much better at that and he can do it, but not for a sustained period of time. So if he had to write an essay and he had to sit down and handwrite it, he's going to fall apart. The sustained effort is, is really, really difficult. And I didn't know anything, you know, about dysgraphia at all. I'd never even heard of it. And dyslexia, I had a complete myth-based you know, belief of what that was. Right. But what she said is that he needed Orton Gillingham, which of course is another thing I'd never heard of before, but at least I have a research background. And so I start researching it and find that, you know, in central Florida, which is where we're located, there was one person four years ago who was certified at any level in the academy working privately to, to support students with dyslexia. And of course we know that one in five have dyslexia. So her wait list was very long and she was, you know, expensive because she has this expertise that no one else has. 
She was amazing and started this process for us of really changing, you know, Reed's life and ultimately our whole family. But, you know, what happened was he couldn't get that tutoring during the school day. We had to take whatever sessions we could get because she had a wait list. So if somebody canceled, we could go, which meant no more playing t-ball with his buddies after school because you had to have the availability to be able to go and tutor. So this thing that he loved to do after school that also allowed him to blow off steam was taken away. And this thing that he was good at and he could be successful in front of his peers and he was exhausted. You know, we'd go through the school day, no support, Mm -hmm. no accommodations, no one understanding and forced to have to try to read, write and spell with, you know, no support. And then go to- Even after you got the diagnosis, they weren't helping him? No, I don't think we ever had a week where the accommodations that were recommended by the neuropsychologist were met in full. And in Mm -hmm. fact, in that particular instance, one of the recommendations was, you know, his spelling words, the list needs to be shorter and it needs to be rules that he's actually learned, not just this week we're learning, you know, basically memorizing is what we expect our kids to do. And 34% of them can do that. But the other 66%, as we know, cannot. So, and dyslexics are are impacted the most and they refuse to do that. So ultimately the teacher refused to do that. So ultimately his tutor gave him his spelling tests and then would tell the school what his grade was. And that was his, that was his spelling grade because the teacher would not do the other word list. So I knew I had to get him out of there. Not only did the school not get it, they were actively obstructionistic. Yeah. Yeah. This this teacher in particular. Yeah. I think, you know, I've heard better things. I think she's learned a lot at Reed's expense, but I think, you know, what I always tell him, because it's a bit, like, if, that, if her name comes up, it visibly impacts him. And mm-hmm. I always tell him, you know, you went through a lot with her, but because of you, she's learned so much and other kiddos get to benefit because of what she learned through you. So did you, leave, now, did you leave that school? We did. I wish... So let me say two things about them. One, they're getting all of their teachers trained in Orton Gillingham right now through Reed Charitable Foundation. So to their credit, it's taken time, but they recognize that this is really important and it benefits all kids and that dyslexic students are actually really bright and you want them to be alumni of your school. These aren't kids that you know should be in special schools and whatever. They're really bright kids. You and just casually mentioned Reed Charitable Foundation. So what is that and when did you start it? Yeah. So when we went through this process with Reed of getting him tutoring and the expense, we were the lucky ones and that we could afford to do it. And I could leave my job and dedicate our lives really to this. But what I realized, first of all, is that our family was in turmoil though. You know, Reed was really struggling. He wasn't getting to do the things he loved to do. His sister was incredibly resentful because our lives really centered around what Reed needed. And, you know, it was a pretty impressionable time for her. I used to watch her at her sports, but instead I just drop her so I could go get Reed and then pick Reed, you know, like all those things that I know it's it's like it sounds so silly, but it's the separating of a family is what happens. You know, you're all of a sudden not really a family unit anymore. You're managing, you know, and he'd get done with tutoring, he's exhausted, and then he still have homework to do. And we still hadn't eaten dinner. We aren't together as a family. We're not spending it. It was 
we were falling apart as a family and we were the lucky ones. And so I was like, what happens to families who don't have all the things we have and we're not doing good over here? And of course, you know, I start researching and really start realizing, you know, that this impacts 20% of the population, 66% of our nation's kids can't read at grade level. Orton-Gillingham's incredibly expensive, both for tutoring and getting teachers trained. There's so few schools that provide this type of instruction. And typically it's very expensive private schools, you know, that most families could not afford. So I knew once we got our feet under us that I felt so passionately that this training should be accessible to all teachers so that all children have a real chance to learn to read, write, and spell. And so we started RCF in October of 2019. We started it by doing a free community education event. We brought Jonathan Mooney, who is a three-time author. He's dyslexic and has ADHD. Not only do I know him, but I got his first book published by (laughs) introducing him to my agent. And I, and, no. I wrote, and I wrote the introduction to it. Oh my gosh. I didn't realize that. Oh yeah. yeah. It's such a small, it's such a, it's such a small world yeah, in so many ways. He, I spoke he, to somebody he wrote about me a you. letter saying, can you, can you uh, help me find an agent? And I, and I said, uh, he was at Brown then. So I, I introduced him to my agent, Jill Neerham, and she loved the idea and they published the book. Well, it was his third book, and Normal Sucks, that he came and spoke. My husband and I privately paid to bring him. Now, your and... southern, the, with your southern accent, the way that title came out was Normal Sex. <laughs> that's not that's not the title of the book. It's no, Abnormal <laughs> Sucks. <laughs> normal Sucks. Yes. Normal. I mean, Normal yes. Sucks. Yes. Normal exactly. Sucks. But He's <laughs> got a great. Of course. Well, that doesn't sound that fun either, does it? I'd like to write a book called Normal Sex, but the the book was Normal Sucks. Sucks, yes. S-U-C-K-S. Right. And we had over 350 people show up on a Wednesday night at six o'clock in downtown Orlando from all over the state of Florida because there's no support here. It's pretty shocking. And of course, again, there's such a huge need. So RCF didn't have, Reed Charitable Foundation didn't have 501c3 status yet. We didn't have a Facebook page, nothing. I really actually don't know how 350 people even knew about it to show up, but that's what happened. And my husband said at the time that night, you know, when we were leaving, he's like, I got to tell you, I thought you were going to have like five to eight moms wearing Birkenstocks and hairy armpits. I just didn't see this. Literally, that's what he said to me. I was like, well, thanks. (laughs) But he's like, I think, I think you're onto something. And I was like, well, I know I'm onto something because if one in five kids have dyslexia and I don't know a single person, somebody's not being honest here. (laughs) No, you were, you were stuck in the, and you're right, it, it's still like that in a lot of places. It's uh, smart and stupid are the two diagnoses and try harder is the only treatment. Or get punished. I mean, get humiliated, get uh, shamed. And in some schools, you get spanked for not being able to read. I mean, it's just, it's terrible. The the well, level, it, it, of, level of ignorance and, and mistreatment these kids receive. And as you point out, they're very often the most gifted of all the kids in the class. Yeah. Well, and, you know, behavior is obviously a thing that starts that didn't with Reed, his behavior was 
illness, you know, just trying to get home. But, you know, that's the other really common thing that happens. And what we hear so often is, especially in adults who reflect back that they're like, I would do anything to get out of the classroom. And I'd much rather be the bad kid than the dumb kid. And so you do all the things and it starts with being sick and forgetting your shoes and whatever. But if it means being difficult, calling people names, hitting people, throwing things, cussing, whatever it takes, the older kids get and the worse and worse they feel they're willing to do anything. So it's so impressive what you did. So you, you, you got him the help he needed. Then you started a foundation to bring to your area, the help that other people needed. And I'm going to move us along a little bit because we're going to run out of time. But I, when did you start to feel that, you know, this really, you were really onto something and you were having a bigger impact than just on read, not to say just on read isn't a lot, but. Well, I think one, that first event, there were so many people. And then from that, you know, immediately there were families that reached out and said they wanted to get involved. How could they help? We did a what we thought was going to be a little fundraiser that December. This was right before COVID. And you know, we were like, if we, you know, this family does this beautiful Christmas lights thing, and they're like, we could open it up in the backyard, make it a private event. Maybe we could raise $5,000 to help you get started. We raised $62,000 that night. Wow. wow. People, you know, donated food, auction items. Like it, became, it was this full event that, you know, we put together in like three weeks. And then, wow we started training teachers. So that's what we do. You know, there's, there's dyslexia empowerment and raising awareness and creating a community, which is all really important. And then our how is really training teachers in Norton Gillingham and making that accessible. So right now we train public school teachers for free and we train everybody else. So private school teachers, related professionals in in the dyslexia space or speech, speech language pathology, homeschool parents, anybody else at a cost of $200. And it's the Orton Gillingham Academy training. So it's pure OG. It's, you know, not a program. It's Mm -hmm. really the true Orton Gillingham approach by a fellow through the Academy. And that training is typically anywhere from a thousand to $3,000. So, you know, we're making it really, really accessible. So we've trained to date in 2021, we trained 448 teachers 22 different states and several outside of the U.S. We just trained 36 teachers last month and are training 40 teachers this month. So we train almost every month, sometimes virtual, sometimes in person, virtual to be able to support folks that are outside of our geographic area to make sure that it's not just happening here. It's so so fantastic what you're doing. ReadCharitableFoundation.org if people want to learn more, correct? Yes, R-E-E-D. Yeah, R-E-E-D, readcharitablefoundation.org. It's just fantastic. And then at some point in the not-too-distant past, you learned something about yourself. Is that correct? (laughs) Yes. Well, I met a lovely gentleman named (laughs) Dr. Ned Hallowell, who did a community education event for us, which was amazing for our community. And through that process, I learned that I, too, have ADHD not dyslexia, but ADHD. And so I went 43, almost 44 whole years, not knowing that I had ADHD. And it has been a pretty life-changing awareness for me. And I also am super duper proud of it. I have spent 
you know, three and a half years in this space and always been kind of bummed out that I didn't think I had neurodiversity because I've yet to meet someone who is neurodiverse, who isn't awesome uh-huh. in some way. Like you just want to be around them and yeah. they're the people you can't take your eyes off of. Yeah. And so I've always been like bummed that I'm not one. <laughs> so I was really excited that I get to be neurodiverse too. That's you uh, and you sure. And how has your life changed since you, since we made that discovery together? I think part of it has been really like a a self reflective self discovery process of really thinking through different phases of my life where I really would think like, what is wrong with you? Why is this so hard? Everybody else seems to be able to do this. And I was really so hard on myself to be able to look back and and go, okay, knowing what I know now, that makes a lot of sense. It's also been pretty empowering to be like, look what you figured out without anybody, without anybody helping you, you know, with that's that problem solving, thinking outside the box piece. Just using your own grit and intuition, you were able to complete law school, get married, have children, the whole the whole package. And and uh, and you were, as I like to put it, you were squinting instead of having eyeglasses. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And just, I think, you know, the other thing I know about myself, more so really in the last few years, but I have a gear that most people don't have. And I've always worked in a pretty type A environment, you know, big defense, you know, law firm. So there's lots of people like that there. So I didn't realize until I wasn't working in an environment like that, that I am kind of like a dog with a bone on things, especially something that I'm really passionate and interested in. Right. And, you know, that's ADHD all day long, but I didn't know that. I really thought ADHD was so different. I thought it was being distracted and hyperactive. See, people don't understand the the good part of it. You know, we're very mission driven. We're very, give us a mission and we'll complete it. We're dogged. We're persistent. We're anything but lazy. We're the opposite of lazy. Yes. And, you know, it's just, it breaks my heart when these kids get called lazy. I mean, they're, you know, talking about kids, you've heard of Captain Underpants. Yes, of course. Well, the man who, Dave Pilkey, who, you know, has big time ADD and dyslexia. He was really mistreated in school, terribly mistreated, but he's not bitter about it. He, but he has on a million, you know, and he's got these books have sold like a hundred million copies. And you know, the PCR test, the polymerase chain reaction test for COVID, the man who invented that has big time ADD, you know, and he won the Nobel prize in chemistry for that. And, you know, it's a, if people don't understand what you now understand that these kids have been pilloried on words like like lazy and stupid and can't get their act together and the, and the tragedy is just the opposite there are most gifted kids the dyslexic and the ADDers and the neuroatypicals you know and and uh, you know i have both ADD and dyslexia and, and uh, i had dysgraphia as a kid as well and and people like you and me and the man who founded jetblue airlines has has it it's but it's up to people like you on the ground you know in the in the trenches one teacher by teacher school by school helping these people comprehend the damage they're doing by what they're missing but the good they can do once they catch on and and you've seen that haven't you for sure. And they want to, you know, I think one of the biggest gifts for me in getting to do this, because obviously we had such a bad 
you know, school experience with multiple teachers. And so it can make you angry and bitter. And what I have found is that as we train teachers, they are put in an impossible position because what happens is they don't get this knowledge in the college of education level. No one ever explains these things to them, which is part of the problem and something we need to fix. Like fundamentally, they should be getting this information when they're pre-service bachelor's degree. And so what they all say is, I felt like I missed the day that they taught us how to actually teach a child how to read. And I must have gone, I must have skipped or had a late night drinking session and skipped. On the day that they talked about dyslexia and ADHD and what it really is. And so I get into school and that is fundamentally what I am expected to do. And I do not know how to do it. And I can't tell anybody that I don't know how to do it because I think everybody else knows how to do it. And so we set them up for failure and we set them up to be very defensive because they are afraid that they miss something. And I'm going to lose my job. I can't level with the mom sitting across from me and tell her, you know what? If Reed can't memorize these words, I don't actually know how to tell him how to break this down. She's going to lose her job. I'm going to go tell the principal that Mrs. So-and-so is not qualified to teach whatever grade and she's going to be in trouble. So we create this like fear and frustration. Everybody, we all have this expectation. Somebody has knowledge that they don't have right right so so what what you've done is you just bring in the knowledge and you don't single anyone out you just say here it is eat at the trough of knowledge and drink at the trough of knowledge and (laughs) spread it around you know and and uh, and then suddenly these kids who have been shunned and and misunderstood start thriving and winning nobel prizes and you know it's a positive story that just can't be told often enough well what would this world look like if these kids were actually empowered and given the knowledge that they need from the very beginning, which by the way, benefits all kids. So even if your child, like my daughter, is one of the 34 percenters that just picks it up and memorizes, Kenzie would be better off if she had gotten Orton Gillingham from the very beginning, reads it better. Everyone is helped by it, yeah. Yeah. A thousand percent. And I think that's another just big misconception is that people are like, oh, that's that's for kids with a you know learning difference. That's I, for stupid that's kids. Right. That's what people that's think, right. and and, and, right. it, and it's so so not true. I mean, it's for it's for everyone, but it's particularly those of us who learn differently, who live in the wonderful world of different. They really need it. And Jen Knopf, K N O P F, Jen Knopf, what an angel you are! What a true angel you are! Look at when you you went from a place of desperation and crying with your son Reed to a place of triumph and you're helping so many hundreds of thousands, millions of people with your, your bounty, your knowledge, your magical touch. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing in central Florida to be shining a light. That's really shining around the world. Now you've really grown and and you're, you're doing such incredible work. I, I just can't congratulate you enough. It is a really beautiful team of people that have come together that are impacted just like my family to make this happen, both from an organizational perspective. Our team is incredible, but also families that trust us and donate to be able to help make this happen. And what I want to say too, just about Reed, just as kind of like a where we are now kind of thing, because this just happened. 
you know, every three years they have to get a new neuropsych evaluation to maintain accommodations and things like that in school. So he just had his done in November and the neuropsychologist, first of all, it's, you know, two days, like kind of the whole morning for two days. And the last time he went was the first time he went and was not a good experience. So he did not want to go, but he is a trooper and he did. And halfway through the first day, he came skipping out and she was like, well, never in 30 years have I had a dyslexic score perfectly on reading comprehension, but it just happened. And we just had our assessment to go through it with the school. And he is considered remediated through fifth grade, which is what he's, you know, the grade he's currently in. He needs the next level of Orton-Gillingham, which we'll be making sure he gets. But he went from the sixth percentile in reading comprehension to the 90th of all fifth graders, not just kids with dyslexia. And his IQ went up another 14 points. Oh, and that's another thing, how skewed downward IQ scores are by these conditions. The most dramatic I ever saw, and uh, neuropsychologists have trouble even believing this, the, the very first boy I ever put on stimulant medication for ADHD back in 1981, his IQ when he came in was tested at 70, mm-hmm. which is which is borderline what used to be called retarded. After we kind of cleaned him up, got to know him a little bit and started him on stimulant medication and retested, his IQ came out at 140, which is borderline genius. So I've never seen that amount of, but but it's not uncommon to see a 10 or 15 or 20 point. And supposedly, you know, IQ is, is not, you know, doesn't move like that. But if you think about it just for half a second, if you can't read and you can't pay attention, how can you do the test? You know, it's going to be skewed, you know, and, and, uh, well, anyway, Jen Knopf, you're one of my heroes. Thank you so much for joining us on the wonderful world of different. You're just from heaven. Will you make me a promise and do this again sometime? Absolutely. And thank you so much. And I will be asking you to do the same for us because your story and your knowledge, deep expertise is so important. And what you did for our group in terms of dispelling the myths and talking about medication. We need people that are actually knowledgeable sharing real information so that people can make good decisions for their kiddos. Absolutely. And, you know, like I said, if you want to learn more or get involved, go to readcharitablefoundation.org and that's R-E-E-D charitablefoundation.org. If you want to reach Jen directly, you can email her at jen at readcharitablefoundation.org. And if you want to reach us, email us. We wish you would with show ideas. If you like this show, if you have other ideas for shows, please, 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 we live off of your feedback. Just email us at different at hallowellcenter.org. That's the word different at hallowellcenter.org. We're very eager to grow this audience and by having guests like Jen Knopf, who's an angel for sure, we just need your support. So please email us uh, different at hallowellcenter.org. We read them all, get back to you, and tell us who else you'd like to have on the show. Jen Knopf, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, thank you, thank you, yes. And for now, this is Dr. Ned Hallowell saying goodbye for the wonderful world of different ADHD and beyond. Until next time, bye-bye.